This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN 89.5 FM, Columbia. As you listen to this program, this is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia, 89.5 FM, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk, music of the world. It's more than radio. It's your listener-sponsored community radio, your imagination station, KOPN, and you're listening to it right now, Monday night, 11 p.m., actually 11.04, on the 25th of July. On uh, the year 2005. All right, um, tonight my guest Nassim Haramine. He's a theoretical physicist, and he has 
a great deal of knowledge in many of the different uh, um, areas of science biology, chemistry, archaeology, anthropology, physics. And he's a very interesting man. And he and his partner, Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher, have uh, recently been accepted. Uh, a paper of theirs has been accepted for publication in the peer-reviewed noetic journal. It's called The Origin of Spin, A Consideration of Torque and Coriolis Forces in Einstein's Field Equations and Grand Unification Theory. A mouthful indeed. Uh, bottom line, uh, they think they have a solution for the long-awaited unified field. And uh, we'll be talking with Dr. Rauscher. Actually, we'll be talking uh, with uh, Nassim Haramein. And uh, Dr. Rauscher won't be with us tonight. However, uh, Nassim will be speaking for both of them tonight. So that's coming up in about an hour or so, just a little more than that. In the meantime, we'll talk about some other stories and see what's going on in the world and in the skies above our heads. Quick thanks to Debbie, Free Range Radio Theater. As always, wonderful, cool stuff from Debbie. That's every Monday night from 10 o'clock until 11. And before her, of course, Jason and Kelvin doing blues plus jazz equals soul or jazz plus blues equals soul depending on which way you like to listen to it all right always anyway uh monday night cool stuff on kopn and uh, stick around after the show for curtis the boogeyman he'll be in at uh, 2 a.m after we finish up things here on radio orbit okay all right thanks for the emails thanks to everybody listening over the web we'll do space weather in just a bit here but first, let me give out contact information, and uh, let's talk about upcoming guests just really quickly here. The email address, orbitradio at AOL.com. That's orbitradio at AOL.com. Whatever you want to talk to me about, questions, comments, concerns, ideas for future programs, anything that's on your mind, feel free to send me an email, and I'll try to get back to you. And if you have ideas or whatever, I try to incorporate that stuff into the show. Uh, the show's changing and evolving as always it's been a year almost uh, since uh, since we started as a matter of fact uh, tonight is the the actual literal one year anniversary now that i think about it i was actually going to have this uh, birthday party tonight but uh, was able to get this interview set up with nasim haramine and so that's why i pushed uh, our little party out until next week but actually it's been a year i guess tonight so yippee yahoo and uh, a big hoorah for radio orbit one-year anniversary tonight. So, okay, uh, enough of that and my own back patent. Uh, the, uh, the website is www.radioorbit.com, R-A-D-I-O-R-B-I-T.com. Just one O in the middle there. The phone number here in the station and in the studio is area code 573-874-5676. Give me a call on the breaks when we have some music playing. Or uh, if you're outside of the 573 area code, 1-800-895-5676. Okay, give me a call sometime in between breaks, and I'll give you something free if you want a copy of the show tonight or one of the earlier shows. If you had one that you missed and you wanted to hear, I'll give you a copy of the show. Or maybe a CD from Yachai or, or Terrence uh, or something like that. Okay? All right, tonight, as I said, Nassim Haramein, uh, an expert in biology, chemistry, Many, many different branches of science. Uh, he runs a, pres uh, a uh, project called the Resonance Project. Uh, the website, for those of you interested and want to get a load of uh, what he's up to, 
before I bring him on the air here, you can go to www.theresonanceproject.org. That's theresonanceproject.org. I'm not going to spell it out. It's an intelligence test of sorts. So uh, get there and uh, click on the uh, link that says The Origin of Spin. And uh, I won't read it again, but that's how it begins. And there's actually a layman's version there, too, if you're not an astrophysicist or something like that and you'd like to just hear it sort of in, uh, in plain English. Uh, there is a, a link there that will let you read uh, about the ideas of uh, Nassim and Dr. Rauscher that we're going to be talking about in just about 45, 50 minutes here, okay? All right, so that's coming up tonight. We're going to talk about uh, this potentially uh, solved question uh, to the long-sought-after quest for the unified field theory, which might revolutionize our understanding of physics uh, and science as we know it. So it's no small thing if these, uh, if these two... Uh, if their ideas are, are correct. And as I said, uh, it's not just pie-in-the-sky stuff. Now it's been accepted for publication in the Noetic Journal. And we'll ask uh, Nassim uh, about the qualifications of that publication, but uh, uh, certainly a uh, respected and peer-reviewed journal uh, that's uh, been doing it for a long time. So, all right, that's coming up next week, the big party. All right, um, as I've been saying... It's a one-year anniversary, so I'm not going to have a guest. We're just going to have some of my friends down here and uh, some live music and lots of different people from the station. And any of the people out there listening, if you'd like to come down and celebrate the one-year anniversary of Radio Orbit, it will be next Monday. Come on down here uh, at 11 o'clock, and you're welcome to stay until the end of the show, which is at 2. So we'll have a three-hour uh, window here. and. You know, we're pretty cool around here, so I think it will be no big deal if you show up a little early or a little bit late. But uh, anyway, come on down. Uh, as I said to a friend of mine, actually a listener that uh, emailed me earlier today, a big part of what I'm trying to do here is is uh, share information. And it's really cool to share information in person. It's one thing to be able to talk into this microphone and wonder and hope that somebody out there is listening and uh, sort of form an image in my own mind of, of what might be going on uh, in those places. Uh, but it's a whole different story to see those real people. And I'm a real person, too. Uh, so you guys could get a chance to meet me, and we could all chat and talk and listen to good music and have a fun time for a few hours next Monday night. So um, I really encourage anybody out there who would like to, if you're up for it, come on down to, um, next Monday, the 1st of August, at 11 o'clock or thereabouts, and join us in celebrating the one-year birthday party of this radio program. All right, enough about that as well, but come on down. I really appreciate it. I know a few people will be here, and actually my friend uh, Yvonne is probably going to have uh, some of her artwork um, maybe displayed, and Jeff Wheeler and a few other guys are going to be down here playing music. I know Casey's going to be down here with his guitar. I'll talk some of the guys uh, uh, into it from the Blue Fugue, the latest reincarnation of the Music Cafe, which is now turning into a really cool place with great live music. And um, 
maybe Danny will come down, and Elliot or some of the guys from down there. So anyway, it's going to be real fun. We're going to have lots of live music and have lots of people here that can get behind the microphone and play good music as well. So come on down, and it'll be a fun time, all right? All right, August 8th, for now it's open. I'm not sure, maybe Vince Bridges. Um, but uh, anyway, we'll see. I'm not sure. Ralph Abraham, I've been talking to Ralph, and unfortunately had a little bit of a setback today. Ralph doesn't uh, want to do a live program because of the hours. It's a little bit too late, uh, I think, in the in the day for him. So um, I'll probably just record an interview with Ralph and I, and, and air it uh, on the program one of these nights. I, I really do want to talk to him, and I think it's something that uh, that you guys would like to hear as well. So I will sacrifice the fact that it won't be live, and we'll do a taped interview with Ralph Abraham. Uh, Dr. Ralph Abraham, a chaos theorist from Santa Cruz University, uh, University of California, Santa Cruz, I should say, and uh, a guy that has basically single-handedly changed the face of mathematics. So that's coming up. Uh, Alex and Allison Gray, the incredible, amazing, remarkable spiritual artists from New York, the pair, again, the man and the woman together doing amazing things. Alex and Allison Gray, April or uh, September 5th, April. I don't know where I'm at. I'm thinking of Terrence again. Anyway, uh, Alex and Allison Gray, September 5th. John Lash, still haven't nailed down the date, but that's going to be a great show when we do it. And uh, David Talbot and Wallace uh, Thornhill, authors of Thunderbolts of God, Electric Universe, Velikovsky Ideas, all that sort of thing. So that's all coming up in the next few weeks, months, whatever. All right, so stick around. We've got Nassim Haramine coming up in uh, just a little while. We've got a few stories to talk about between now and then. We've got space weather to do. A few other things to mention in between there and now. Uh, but first, let's uh, chill out a little bit, have a little bit of music. Uh, this is um, a band called Spoon. I like it. It's called I Turn My Camera On. Back in a few minutes, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. <laughs> Feelings on, I turn my feelings on the side. 
right, Spoon. I turned my camera on. That's a cool new band. That's from a compilation disc from Paste Magazine, if, anybody, if anybody's curious. I'm sure it's on Spoon's most uh, recent release. All right, some of the operating funds for KOPN are provided by listener support and a donation from the Blue Note. Information about the Blue Note is available at www.thebluenote.com or at 573-874-1944. Check it out at the Blue Note. Richard King and company bringing great live music to Columbia for 25 years now. All right, this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. All right, before we do space weather, a couple of quick things here. Uh, hurricanes just sort of lining themselves up in the Atlantic again this year. And you may recall the show from June 20th with Scott Stevens where he told us explicitly, keep your eye on the Gulf of Mexico for strange things happening and the Atlantic. Of course, not too difficult a prediction with the last couple, three years, but Scott comes from a, a, a unique uh, perspective and vantage point, so it's worth listening to some of the things that he has to say when it comes to weather. At any rate, uh, the hurricane season is in full swing, and it's not even August yet, so we'll have to see what the rest of the season brings, but so far it doesn't look good for the equatorial and southern coastlines of South America, Mexico, the United States, and the same thing's happening on the other side of the world. Uh, you may not be hearing a whole lot of it, but uh, Taiwan just got lashed by some giant cyclone, and the Chinese coast uh, has been getting hammered. So this stuff is happening all over the planet. It's not, uh, it's not limited to the southeastern coast of the United States of America. So whether Scott's right or wrong, and regardless of the causal factors of these big storms, they are happening and with more frequency, apparently. All right, I had a couple people that were upset that I made uh, the changes on the website with the the, um, the format for the program, the way it's archived. I was using these Windows Media audio files for a while, and I've converted the last four or five shows to MP3s, and I think finally I got it figured out, and you'll be happy with it now. There's two different links now. One you can click on to download an MP3 that is of much higher quality than the Windows Media files that I had been using previously. And then there's another link there that you can click on that says Stream, and that'll launch the MP3 as a streaming audio file, and you won't have to download it uh, before you listen to it. It'll automatically start to play. Uh, so if you have a dial-up connection or, or you don't have a, the greatest uh, connection, uh, you'll still be able to listen pretty much uninterrupted to the program now from the archive. So thanks uh, to uh, John, a new friend and listener out there somewhere who sort of uh, poked me into awareness of the problem and prompted me to get it fixed. And I think we got it worked out now. So anyway, so uh, cool new stuff on the website. And I like when I've solved these technological problems because I'm not the most adept when it comes to working on the computer. But I'm getting a little bit better at it. And if anybody knows how to help me uh, start to podcast the program, uh, I'd be more than happy to accept your gracious offer of assistance because I know it's possible, I know it's not that difficult, but I need somebody's help in figuring out how to do it. Okay, one other thing. There was a story I read last week about a young man whose name is Gary McKinnon, and he's being charged as a terrorist for hacking into certain 
uh, high-level government computers, and I had a couple people call me about it and ask about the story and where it could be found. Well, there was an interesting interview done with Gary McKinnon uh, that's actually on the BBC website right now. So uh, I've got the address in front of me here, but it's a whole bunch of gobbledygook, so I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But just go to the BBC, uh, bbc.co news and put in Gary McKinnon into their little search engine there, and you'll find an audio interview uh, about a half hour long with, with this young man who's being charged and uh, may possibly go to prison for 70 years uh, for, well, it's debatable what, what, what really went down. So anyway, go listen for yourself, and if you're interested in that story, there's more information there, and I think you should look into that a little bit because it's sort of a poster child story, if you know what I mean. So, anyway, okay, space weather. Oh, one other thing. Another, the earthquake stuff continues. 7.6 uh, on Nicobar Islands yesterday outside of India. And, of course, it generates tidal waves again and, and thousands of people running for their lives yesterday. And, again, I'm not sure. I don't watch the television too much. And, but I know on the, on the radio news I didn't hear anything about it. But a big earthquake again in the Indian Ocean. So the earth is still shaken and quaking, and there's still a lot of imbalance in the whatever's going on in the, in the, the gr- on the ground beneath our feet. And it's been like that increasingly now for a number of years. But, boy, it seems like uh, what happened in December of last year really sort of set things loose. And I don't think things have really been the same ever since the big quakes in the Indian Ocean in December of last year so all that stuff going on all right space weather a uh, meteor shower coming up actually not not for a few weeks actually yet but in august of let's see when is it i think around the 12th maybe the 13th of august uh, it'll be a friday saturday kind of a weekend night and uh, mars will actually be sort of bright at the same time and there'll be a meteor shower that's called the perseid meteor shower that'll be very prominent on those couple three nights in the middle of august so mark your calendars it should be a lovely sky show especially on friday the 12th which is the uh the peak of the perseid meteor shower perseid of course they call it the perseid meteor shower because the direction from which the meteors come is the constellation perseus doesn't mean they actually come from perseus but they come from that direction and I think that uh, I'm not sure if they actually know the source of the Perseid meteors. But at any rate, that's coming up in just a few weeks here. The solar forecast is pretty mellow. Uh, the sun has actually been uh, interestingly quiet for the last couple of weeks, ever since it launched those big flares just a couple of weeks ago that we talked about. But uh, don't be surprised if something changes pretty quickly. On the back side of the sun, on the far side, there's been a whole bunch of things exploding and coronal mass ejections sort of sur- shooting off uh, from, the, from the eastern limb of the sun. So whatever's over there, probably a big sunspot, will be rotating soon around to the front side of the disk and uh, will be visible to us here on Earth. Now, uh, so keep your eye on the eastern limb of the sun. Now, if you're looking at the SOHO satellites, the eastern limb of the sun will be on the left-hand side. Uh, because of the optics, it, it, it shows us the images in reverse. So if you're looking for the eastern limb of the sun, of the sun look to the left-hand side, what you would normally consider the west coast, and do the opposite if you're looking for the west, okay? All right, 
Now, the way if if you're if you're curious how they actually know what's on the backside, they do this thing that's called helioseismic holography, and they have this funky um, device that's hooked up to the uh, Soho Observatory, and it's called the Mickelson Doppler Imager. They call it the MDI, and it has the ability to sort of holographically interpret what's happening on the backside of the sun by interpreting these fluctuations in the in the uh, in the surface of the sun and pressures and it has to do with redshift and blue shift. It's pretty cool actually how they do it. But uh, if you're interested further in the details of that, just go down to spaceweather.com and uh, click on um, one of the links over there on the left-hand side of the page on the on the front page there that talks about what's happening on the back side of the sun and they'll they'll give you a, an explanation of helioseismic holography and how they do that. Okay. All right, we'll come back in just a few minutes. Actually, let's do one more story here. This is sort of related to space weather. It has to do with uh, uh, the comet Temple Tuttle that was struck by our probe a number of weeks ago. And there's been some real interesting news and some really uh, repetitive news that's come out about this thing. It's really, really strange. You know, the web is an interesting place because... Conversations arise and discussions come up that sometimes don't mean anything and they're sometimes very valid and they can come up in the strangest of places. But at any rate, there's a lot of talk still about Temple Tuttle and about the experiment that uh, happened a few weeks ago. And there are people that are not very happy with the information that's coming out of NASA and JPL now. And there are lots of different ideas about what's going on. Now, there are some things in the mainstream media, such as the one that I'm going to read right now, that do show that something strange is happening. And this is sort of related to uh, Wallace Thornhill and David Talbot, who I mentioned earlier, who have written this book, The Thunderbolts of God. And they've done a lot of scientific research into the earlier research of Immanuel Velikovsky, who had this idea of a sort of electric universe. And these guys have sort of put the microscope of science on those ideas and have come up with some astounding results and they've written about it and they're talking about it and the way comets act and the way comets are actually composed and made and the way that they actually are in reality as opposed to what the the standard idea in physics and science tells us they are this basically this idea of a dirty snowball well their ideas predict certain results that may be seen in in the reactions of Temple Tuttle since it was struck by this uh, this projectile that we blasted at it just a few weeks ago. Now, my first impression was that it was copper. The projectile that was shot into the comet was, was copper. And I thought, what an interesting choice of metals. There are certainly metals that we have that are much more dense and that could do much damage could probe further into the uh, the body of the comet copper is actually a pretty soft metal but copper is related to electricity and I thought that immediately so anyway these guys uh, think that it's related and I'm just going to read this story here because I think it's interesting okay Temple Tuttle's new tale this is from uh, Caltech actually and reported by astrobio.net Astronomers using the Palomore Observatory's 20-inch Hale telescope have been amazed by Comet Temple 1's behavior during and after its collision with deep impact space probe. In the minutes just after the impact, the comet was seen to increase its near-infrared brightness nearly five-fold. 
As the event progressed, astronomers at Palomar were able to distinguish jets of material venting from the comet's nucleus that have persisted for days. Now, this is me just adding this. I'd like to see the chromo uh, chromatography of that stuff. That hasn't been released yet about what, what the actual structure of this thing is and what they're made of. At any rate, early results from the data in images taken just minutes after impact showed a possible plume of dust and gas extending some 320 kilometers from the comet center, roughly coinciding with the site of the probe's final demise. Anyway, the article goes on to say, we are very excited by these results. It's a fabulous time to be studying comets. It will be interesting to see how long the effects of the, the, effects of the impact persist. Now, what happened was the, uh, the comet actually developed a new tail. And it was something that was completely unexpected by the scientists that, are, uh, that had designed this experiment and that are observing it. And it does sort of jive with the ideas of Talbot and Thornhill and others that are talking about uh, a much more electrical uh, component to these uh, these interactions in space and it has to do uh, it's very relevant actually actually because it it uh, it means that all of our bodies are electrical in nature the earth the sun and there are electrical connections and uh, relationships between all these different bodies that are more than just rocks that are flying around as we'll talk about tonight with uh, with Nassim Haramine uh, spin and charge and angular momentum are things that are fractal and uh, they're self-similar across scale and that's the sort of thing that we're going to be talking about tonight so anyway uh, some stuff to think about in the meantime I'm going to get Nassim on the phone I think we'll have a couple of pieces of music here and we'll come back to a couple more stories and then talk about physics and a unified field theory with Nassim Haramein, founder of the ResonanceProject.org, a theoretical physicist who's published a paper recently with Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher that uh, proposes a solution to the unified field theory. We'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. Open up and take me in 
to Radio Orbit on KOPN. Had a little bit of a long break there, but we're back at you here. Uh, Nassim Haramain, my guest, coming up in just a few minutes, is sort of in transit. I caught him in between uh, places and got him on his cell phone, but he'll be arriving shortly at the place where he needs to be for us to conduct our interview. So I'm going to do a quick story here, and we'll take another quick music break in a few minutes here, and I'll get him on the phone. But we'll have things lined up in just a few minutes here, okay? All right, this is from Wired Magazine from uh, July 19th and it says can mind affect machines for 26 years strange conversations have been taking place in a basement lab at Princeton University no one can hear them but they can see their apparent effect balls that go in certain directions on command water fountains that seem to rise higher with a wish and drums that quicken their beat yet no one hears the conversations because they occur between the minds of experimenters and the machines that they will to action Researchers at the Princeton Engineering Anomalies Research Program, or PEER, have been attempting to measure the effect of human consciousness on machines since 1979. Using random event generators, computers computers that spew random output, they have participants focus their intent on controlling the machine's output. Out of several million trials, they detect small but, but statistically significant signs that minds may be able to interact with machines. However, the researchers are careful not to claim that minds cause an effect or that they know the nature of the communication. Of course, no researcher in his, in his right mind would, would, would ever uh, mention anything about consciousness because then he'd probably lose his grant or his tenure or something like that. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, for many, many, this, this article is really, really an understatement is what it is. It's an oversimplif uh, oversimplification as well. But 
uh, it, it does show that this stuff is sort of uh, trying to reach out into, into the mainstream. The bottom line is that the research has been going on for nearly 30 years now, and, it, and, the, and they wouldn't have continued it if it wasn't uh, something that, uh, uh, that demanded further study. And as a matter of fact, one of the most astounding incidents that happened in the lab at Princeton was on the morning of September 11, 2001. And if you're interested in the way consciousness affects machines, go look at what happened uh, to what we call the eggs uh, at Princeton on the morning of September 11th, four years ago. And that is the story. If, uh, if there's a story about this Princeton project, that is it. Although they don't mention it in this article that I'm reading now. But uh, talk about uh, making something that's supposedly random, completely non-random, well, it happened that morning, and I don't think it was a coincidence. So, anyway, interesting article from Wired Magazine. Uh, go on the web if you want to read the whole thing. And uh, let's take another quick break here. I think we've got uh, enough time under our under our belt now to get uh, Nassim on the phone. I think he should be where he needs to be. So we'll be back in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN, and I figure this is a nice time to play a little birthday song dark as it may be. Happy birthday. Even though the party's next week, uh, Radio Orbit is one year old tonight. So there's this woman and she was uh, <clears throat> on an airplane and she's flying to meet her fiancé sailing high above the, the largest ocean on planet Earth and she was seated next to this man who, you know, she had tried to start conversations and only, really the only thing she heard him say was just to order his his Bloody Mary, and when she's sitting there and she's reading this really arduous magazine article about a third world country that she couldn't even pronounce the, the name of, and she's feeling very bored and very despondent, and, and then uh, suddenly there was this huge mechanical failure, and one of the, the engines gave out, and they started just falling. In 30,000 feet, the uh, pilot's on the on the microphone, and he's he's saying, "I'm I'm sorry, I'm sorry, oh my God, I'm I'm sorry, I'm apologizing." And and she looks at the man, and she and she says, she says, she says, "Where are we going?" And uh, he looks at her, and he says, "We're going to a party. It's it's a birthday party." It's your birthday party. Happy birthday, darling. We love you very, 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 very much. And then uh, he starts humming this little tune, and and uh, it kind of goes like this. It's kind of one, two, one, two, three, four. Every telephone get eaten off the web Must rip out all the epilogues from the books that we have read Into the face of every criminal strapped firmly to a chair We must stare, we must stare, we must stare We must take all of the medicine, it's too expensive now to sell Set fire to the preacher who is promising us hell Through the ear of every anarchist that sleeps but doesn't dream We must sing, we must sing, we must sing And it'll go like this, alright While my mother waters plant 
This is Mike Hagan, and you are listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. I've got one more story here I want to mention before we get to the top of the hour here and bring my guest Nassim Haramain on the air. And this is something that uh, came up in a conversation that I was having with Dr. Ralph Abraham this week over email. Uh, of course, I, I mentioned Dr. Abraham earlier. He's a chaos theorist from the uh, University of California at Santa Cruz, and I'm working on an interview with him uh, to get him on the program. At any rate, uh, there's a story that came out from a group they call themselves the Alchemy Group, interestingly enough. Uh, but the story, which was published uh, again in a, uh, in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, which is called uh, the INRIA, and I forget exactly what it stands for. I think it's the National Institute for Research in Computer Science in, in, in France or something like that. But at any rate, the story goes like this. It says, Chaos Governing Computers... One might think that complex microchips that govern modern computers have in, a, have in a precise, predetermined way. For the members of the Alchemy Research Group at the French National Institute for Research in Computer Science and Control, they, have, they believe in a chaotic, unpredictable way, or they behave in a chaotic, unpredictable way, comp comparable to the weather. Modern microprocessor architectures rely on impressive numbers of transistors. A commonly used Intel Pentium 4 chip, for example, has 42 million transistors, while the more modern Itanium 2 has no fewer than 410 million. These units interact through intricate rules, and their performance can be highly variable and difficult to predict, says Hugh Berry, a member of the research team. 
In their research, the three members of the team analyzed, miter, uh, analyzed modern microprocessor performance by separately running the same standard programs many, many times on a simulator of the kind commonly used by engineers to design and test the microprocessors. They measured the time needed by the processor to perform the task and found that the time took to execute the programs varied widely between trials. The Alchemy team noted that, that the performance of these microprocessors during the execution of certain programs displayed complex, non-repetitive variations that challenge traditional analysis, but that have been su successfully described using what is known as deterministic or deterministic chaos analysis. So you can read more about that on the web. Just go uh, put in the search engine alchemy and uh, chaos and computers, something like that. But it's a very interesting story because it basically means that even these machines that men are building, even machines that men are building, are behaving in manners that were not predictable even by the men who built them. Chaos theory is taking over in environments even where it is unexpected to be seen. And I think that this is a really significant story. So anyway, put that in your pipe and smoke it for a while. And we've got just a few minutes to the top of the hour. We'll take one more break. I'll get things set up here, and we'll come back at the top of the hour with Nassim Haramain and talk about all kinds of interesting things, including a possible solution to the unified field theory of physics and science in general. So that's coming up in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN.
are listening to Radio Orbit with Mike Hagan on KOPN 89.5 FM. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia 89.5 FM. It's just after midnight, and uh, time to start the heart of the show tonight. He was born in Geneva, Switzerland, 1962. As a very young man, he became interested in physics and even began developing uh, the basis for his own hyperdimensional theory, which eventually became what we will talk about tonight, an idea of the unified field theory, uh, which was developed based on a geometric array which he has found to be fundamental to the entirety of creation. Nassim Haramein is my guest tonight. He's an expert in many different fields, including biology, chemistry, archaeology, ancient history, anthropology, and of course physics. He's recently, uh, with his partner, Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher, uh, a publication has been accepted by the peer-reviewed Noetic Journal, which uh, is entitled uh, The Origin of Spin, a Consideration of Torque and Coriolis Forces in Einstein's Field Equations and Grand Unification Theory. It's a peer-reviewed paper uh, that uh, could possibly revolutionize our understanding of physics as we know it. So without further delay, let's say hello this evening to Nassim Haramein, thanks very much for being on Radio Orbit tonight, Nassim. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm grateful to be here with you guys. Yes, it's uh, uh, for me sort of a... Uh, I'm really pleased that we finally were able to pull it off. I had had difficulty, and I've known about your work for quite some time through my friend Dr. Michael Heisen, uh, who's been on this program before, but he spoke very highly of you both on the air and off the air and even shared some of your uh, research and material with me over the last couple of months, so I'm uh, really pleased that we were able to get together and talk about all of the interesting research and work that you've been doing, not only recently, but uh, over your entire career. So I'm really pleased to have you here, and I'll just thank you one more time. So, Thank you. appreciate I'm glad to be here. Michael is talking to me about your show, and um, I was looking forward to being on it. Um, and Michael and I have a great time uh, working some of the more advanced uh, correlation between the physics that I'm writing and, and biology, and he's a great collaborator and, and certainly a great human being. Certainly, I agree with you fully. All right, well, let's get things going here with a little background on yourself. As we get talking about uh, the unification of some of these diverse areas of science, I think it's good that we have a framework for you and how uh, the background that you came from that maybe gave you a better perspective on how we might approach these things. So maybe as much as you'd like, why don't you give us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you were educated, where you grew up, that sort of stuff, and just sort of uh, the things that, uh, that made you who you are. Um, yeah, well, you know, it really kind of, I took a really unusual path through uh, education. My father was, uh, you know, certainly very steep in the educational, um, you know, research uh, community. He was um, basically left hand or right hand of uh, 
of Piaget for a long time. Piaget being one of the fathers of, uh, um, you know, um, education and uh, child psychology. Mm-hmm. And um, my father was working with him um, throughout his PhD thesis and then eventually uh, was director of some of the programs that Piaget was leading at the time. And then eventually, and that was all in Switzerland, in Geneva. And then eventually, um, my father moved to Canada and bought the whole family. And so I spent a lot of time in Canada, especially during the winters. And um, so I was with my father and, and, and as well my mother being an intellectual um, you know, person, I was very surrounded with a lot of different thoughts about philosophy and um, creation and physics and, and mathematics and so on. And uh, however, I, I, I was very, I was having very large difficulty at school, and I was kind of my father's worst nightmare. Um, and um, I was really kind of a case for him to be able to study. Um, <laughs> you know, exactly one of the of the kids that has a hard time sitting down at school and you know a little overactive and so on so on and certainly thinking about the universe a lot and, mm. and how it works and, and from a very young age and i was very intrigued um and i didn't necessarily discuss it much but i was um you know walking uh from back and forth uh, for, from school and looking at the trees looking at the patterns uh looking at the Grass, um, you know, looking at the flowers and, and you know, being fascinating, fascinated with the patterns everywhere, mm-hmm. and that really kind of fueled my research much later on. This, these innocent kind of observation of things um, in nature and how nature has a way to self-organize and, and create highly coherent structures, mm-hmm. um, and and to me that behavior that way of 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 nature to to create very highly complex system out of um simple ones um showed that they, they had some kind of of organization some kind of structure some kind of underlying um dynamics that that nature emerged from and and, and really came clear to me in early childhood that um, there must be some fundamental geometric structure that that um, space and time is bounded to in order for things to self-organize in, in the natural world. Um, that obviously was not the, you know, classical views and the, the classical conclusions in right. science and physics. So, in general, I was kind of put off by the um, mainstream views, and and I decided to early uh, start my own research and, and work on my own, uh, and and kind of pay my dues, but in a different way, using you know libraries and universities to um, to study independently, and that gave me the freedom to think my own thoughts and mm. to study the the fields that interest me the most. And to do a lot of cross study, uh, a lot of cross study between various things that don't, you know, instinctively or, you know, don't seem, you know, right away obviously related. So, like, uh, ancient civilization studies and, 
and advanced physics or or you know quantum theory mm. and you know biology or even um, uh, anthropology and so on and mm. so uh, you know I I I was able to due to this kind of way of doing things to to get a global view and and I think that's one of the most necessary thing that's really missing in the current way of doing things is where specialization is so strong that the tendency is to lose the global view, the global understanding of what's going on. And the result is that um, we get a science that's very split, uh, very separated, um, that don't necessarily agree with each other. And, and, you know, one of those big chasms of, of science is that, that split between the macro world of the relativistic equations, Einstein's equations, and and the micro world of the quantum view, and and that chasm, that split, that that Einstein most most of his uh, spent most of his life trying to bridge, um, and then all, many scientists afterwards, it became clear to me that if we could solve that problem at that fundamental level, we would be able to start to uh, unify all of the rest of the things that we see in nature and so on. That, that was the root, root of, 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 um, of a larger understanding and of, of a global and, and certainly universal understanding of the forces of nature. So okay. really that, that was my driving force and, and I realized in school that there was some fundamental errors that were made very early in the axioms of physics that made it very difficult for that chasm to be um, bridged to, you know, that that these axioms maybe give us a erroneous picture of the fundamental structure under which the universe creates, you know, uh, from planetary systems to galaxy to solar system to atoms to subatomic particle or even to biology so um, and and one of those most precious moments of, of really kind of getting a clue on, on which direction to take was was uh, occurred when I was about 10 years old and I had a moment where I, I the teacher went to the blackboard and said we we're going to learn about dimensions and um, he made a little dot on the blackboard and called it dimension zero and said that it didn't exist and and you know this is a lesson we all went through and it has puzzled a lot of people throughout the ages um, you know right away I had a problem with the theory or the axiom because if you make a dot on the blackboard and you say it's dimension zero and it doesn't exist I'm already having a problem because you have a dot that you're able to see, so how can it not exist? But that's irrelevant. Um, the, the, <laughs> you know, the, the further the lesson went, the further I knew I was going to fail that class because <laughs> it just didn't make sense mm. to me. Um, if, and he, he, the next thing he did is he put a bunch of dots together and made a line called it dimension one and said it didn't exist neither because it still didn't have volume. And um, it was made out of dots. And then he made um, four lines together to make a plane called the dimension two and said that one still didn't have volume and didn't exist. Right. 
because it was made out of lines which are made out of dots. And then uh, all of a sudden, he, the teacher did something that seemed miraculous to me. He he took six of these planes and placed them together into a cube and said, this is dimension three, and that one exists. That's the one you're in. <laughs> and I couldn't get it. I just, how can you get a point that doesn't exist, that makes a line that doesn't exist, that makes a plane that doesn't exist, and now you're slapping six non-existing planes together to get a cube, you're not enclosing space because the planes don't exist, so you don't have existence. All you have is non-existence to the force. Right, right. And, uh, you know, um, I knew that I was going to be the wrong answer on my exam. <laughs> but um, I was determined that, you know, there was a lack in that action, that, that very simple action. And it's interesting that um, you were talking about chaos theory earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, because really that was my first clue um, that maybe... Um, the uh, the way to solve the problem um, would be that the only thing that exists is the point. That is, that in the point, the point can be divided to infinity in a fractal way, in a geometric way, in such a way that um, all dimensions would be present within a point. That each point would contain all information. Mm -hmm. um, these at the age of ten, these thoughts at the age of ten were really. But these are thoughts you're having at the age of 10 years old. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, I was trying to solve this uh, dimensional problem because I didn't think it was correct. So I, you know, I thought about it. And, and the only way I could see to solve it was that the point, the, you know, the zero, dim what we call zero dimension is actually, you know, uh, uh, singularity, a point of infinite density or a point that can be divided in, into infinite quantities okay. and um, and you know when I you know I got really excited about that that part and uh, you know when I went and saw my mother you know you know when you have like a, a moment of discovery you want to tell someone sure if, if you're 10 years old you're probably going to tell your mom yeah, you know? that's what, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so I told my mom and you know um, well my mom said well you know if if every point in the system is is infinite in nature, that would mean every atom is infinite in nature. That would mean I'm infinite, and you know I don't feel infinite. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, he's, and 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 she was making a very important point: is that how you get boundaries out of infinities? And you know that very specific uh, point really nails the chasm between relativistic physics, which has this continuous infinite. Curvature and and quantum theory, which defines boundaries. Right. So, I was, you know, puzzled, and I had to think about it. I really did, and I thought about it for a long time. But, but I stopped telling people because I I couldn't figure out <laughs> the solution, and uh, it took me a long time. Um, but then I realized that with simple geometry we could solve that problem. That is. In a simple fractal structure, um, boundaries and infinite curvature are kind of um, cohabit cohabitating together. You know, they're, they're, um, they work on each other. That is, for instance, if you imagine you were making a circle on a piece of paper. Now, you could think of that circle as a 3D sphere. 
but let's make it a circle and and let's make an equilateral triangle in it. Okay. Um, and then polarize that equilateral triangle in it. You're gonna get a six-pointed six star, a star David inside a circle. Okay. All right. And now imagine you make a little circle on each of the points of the six-pointed star. Now you get smaller six-pointed stars. Hey, and uh, then if you no. make a and and you can make new smaller circle, new smaller boundaries. Nothing. Nothing. Imagine you made little six-pointed stars a little smaller again, and then get a, a a smaller circle, and again and again and again and again and again and. And if you were to give that program to computer and get the computer to zoom in every maybe um, you know five uh, resolutions and then zoom in again and keep doing little triangles and little circles and little triangles and little circles, little triangles, little boundaries, well you could do that to infinity and mm. you know your computer could go until it ran out of juice or the chips in it would burn out <laughs> you know they could go into some chaotic mess or something. Right. Hey, listen while, while we're while we're on this I want to mention the website real fast and let people uh, know that some of this stuff that you're describing uh, geometric imagery and stuff uh, is available on the website there's actually some really neat images on your on the graphics uh, section of your website so I want to mention that to the audience out there so everybody if you'd like and if you're if you're online right now Jump on the web and go to theresonanceproject.org. That's theresonanceproject.org. And you can look at lots of different stuff on the site there, but if you click on the link that says graphics, uh, a number of different things will pop up, but some of the things that uh, Nassim is explaining to us right now might become a little bit clearer in your mind if you can see an image of them. And, and it, it, some of the uh, the graphics are, are really nice, and uh, uh, just, you know it's amazing how you can... Uh, a picture is worth a thousand words in many cases. So I advise everybody to yeah. go, go take a look at these things. So anyway, okay, sorry for the interruption there, but the Resonance Project oh. is the website, and uh, you guys should go check it out and read information there, but also go to that graphics link if you get a chance. Okay. Right, and you can click on the, on the graphics, and if you download the little plug-in, which is really uh, easy plug-in to download, um, then you can move the geometry around and look at it from all angles. Kind of neat, right? And, um, and, and as we as we learn, uh, rotation and spin is a big part of this. So to look at some of these geometries in motion uh, adds more than you might think to the uh, to, to the effect. So yeah, exactly. And so basically, uh, you know, the example I was given, you can keep adding further and further divisions and go to infinity within, always, in this case, within the boundary that you first established for yourself. That is, the first circle you made is a defined boundary from which you are defining infinite uh, fractal division inside it. And but couldn't you also just naturally go outward with it? And, and right. You could... You could as well go outward to infinite large and what's really important here is that from any scale in the system you can define a boundary and then have infinity within it okay so you have a relationship uh, uh, between okay. infinite division and boundary hmm. division of space okay and that gives me 
a clue to the structure of, you know, how space would be able to divide to generate different scales from universal size scale to galactic to, well, actually to to superclusters, to galactic, to solar systems, to planetary systems, to atomic structure, to subatomic structure, and so on. And that each of these boundary in the scale from infinitely big to infinitely small would be one of those fractal division of space. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that? Yes, makes and, perfect sense. And, and so um, much later on with, with Elizabeth Rauscher, we were able to write a scaling law where we show the relationship from, you know, with the data that's available on all these scales uh, on a graph where, the, where there's, a, there's a direct linear progression from subatomic particle all the way to universal size object in terms of their energy level and their scale. And that is really remarkable. Um, we presented that to various uh, directors of the telescopes um, on Hawaii and so on and uh, at the APS, the American Physical Society, and it was very well received. It was really interesting. A lot of astrophysicists were blown away to show that, that, that there was such a relationship mm-hmm. between different scale objects in the universe and all the way down to subatomic and atomic particles. So, you know, it's, if I can add something, it's interesting to me because sometimes the most intuitive things turn out to be the way reality, reality works. In other words, uh, even, even to a child, as you mentioned, uh, the, the, the similarity between the way that an, the, the way that an, uh, the way that an atom works, uh, the way that electrons spin around the nucleus of the atom is obviously uh, similar to the way that a solar system works, which is obviously similar to the way that a galaxy works. And it, it, it seems to be something that is intuitive, yet uh, very difficult, or at least took a long, long time for, for, for science to be able to say, yeah, the universe is self-similar across scale. Yeah, and it's well, not, ju- and know, it's not um, just a coincidence, in other words. We were told- right. Um, you know, if you were talking to a standard physicist about that, you would say, oh, no, absolutely not. Atoms are not like little solar systems. And that's the problem. If, you know, where they go wrong, because you know what? When you talk to seven years old, they all think in that way. You right. know, tendency is to think that, um, and uh, why would make it through. Well, when you look at history, um, you find that actually, and that's why I studied so so many ancient civilizations, is Mm -hmm. that if there is a fundamental pattern to creation, then it should kind of be apparent in our morses and in our traditions and throughout eons of evolution. You know, you should be able to see um, these fundamental pattern emerging, this fundamental knowledge coming out um, in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of cultures, and and that, you know, it, it, and and you do, and that's what's amazing. Um, you know, you you ask when you talk to seven years old or or eight years old or ten years old kids, and you say, well, the universe is kind of this big bubble that that came out of a big bang, and and it's expanding. Um, the the one, most of them 
one of the first get questions you're going to ask is, what is it expanding in? And, you know, right away, there's a, there's a problem to the physicist there. The, the physicist is not able to answer that question. Um, you know, when, um, when you learn about the atom, the tendency is to see it as a solar system, yet quantum theory doesn't describe it that way. Now, why? And this is where you have to start digging. Where did the error go? Where did the separation between the big and the small happen? Because it just happens that all these big things we call planets and suns and galaxies and superclusters and universes, they're all made out of the small things we call atoms. Right. So how can they not be under the same dynamic? How can they... How could it be that they're using completely different mathematics mm -hmm. and completely different physics. Um, it didn't make sense to Einstein. It didn't make sense to many physicists after him. Solving it is another issue. So it was a question of digging and digging and looking at it from different angles. And that took me over 20 years of research. And, you know, I got a lot of help from very good mathematicians like Elizabeth Rauscher and other physicists that helped me along the line because, you know, advanced physics is very complex and certainly Einstein field equations are some of the most complex equations on Earth. So, um, it, you know, it, it, it took time to kind of dig in the science and dig into the information and, and, and extract where things may have gone wrong, and that's when, you know, just to give you an idea, um, just to give you an idea of the implication of what I just talked about, like this very simple geometric pattern uh, that we just discussed, kind of prove in one way that you could keep building faster and faster accelerators and keep smashing atoms at faster and faster rates and get smaller and smaller particles and keep thinking that you're going to find some fundamental particle, right. but actually you're just dividing things towards infinity. I mean, right. now we're looking right. for the X boson, right. the right. accelerator at, um, you know, CERN in Geneva is going to cost $300 billion, right. demanded the help of five countries. Um, and and now we're, we're dividing things that are billions of times smaller than an atom, where, what are we dividing? Right. We're really dividing the vacuum. We're really kind of, you know, showing that infinite division is possible. So to me, it was clear, even from that simple example, that maybe we should stop trying to find some fundamental particle, which every time we find a new one, we think that's it, that there's nothing smaller. And then, you know, we find a new way to... Um, built an accelerator and then we get a smaller particle. Well, instead of doing that, maybe we should look for a fundamental pattern of division because that would tell us how the universe divides hmm. and what are the constraints, uh, the energy constraints and the dynamics and the physics under which the divisions occur, which is, you know, something that many physicists have pointed out throughout the ages. I'm not the only one. Um, you know, Jeff Chu of the Linear Accelerator at Stanford mentioned that in the 70s um, and, and so on. So, 
you know, a simple understanding of the fractal division of nature the, gives you a whole kind of new view on how you should approach physics and, and how, you know, we used to think that an atom was the smallest thing we were going to find, and then we, thought, we, we, we found, well, actually, before that, we thought cells were the smallest thing we were right, going right. to find, and then we found that atoms were much smaller <laughs> than cells, right. and then we found electrons, and then we found the nuclei of the atom, and protons, and neutrons, and quarks, and now X bosons, and so on. And what I'm saying is that, you know, every time we find this, well, we did the exact same in the other direction. We thought, you huh. know, the Earth was the biggest thing, right. and then we realized the Sun was much bigger, and then we realized the solar system was much bigger, and then we realized that the galaxy was much bigger, and, and then we thought that was the biggest thing, mm -hmm. and then we found super clusters, and then we thought that was the biggest thing, and so on. And what I'm saying is, you know, you can't, you could say, well, you know, maybe our universe is part of a larger one, which is part of a larger one that's part of a larger one, and so on. And so, if that is true, then the geometry and the dynamics under under which these division happens is what we really need to know, because then we would have the key to the structure of space-time. We would have the key to the structure of creation, the mm -hmm. structure of division in space that gives us all the scales and that gives us our experience of reality. Everything that's bigger than us and everything that's smaller than us. All right. So, well, look, I tell you what, uh, we are just about at the bottom of the hour here, so I think that's a good place to take a break. Um, yes. And you got a lot in there in the last uh, in 25 minutes, so that was great. And a, a tremendous amount of information, actually, there, Nassim, and I appreciate it. I appreciate it. You obviously have come prepared to talk about a whole lot of stuff tonight. So uh, let's continue that uh, just after a break here. My guest is Nassim Haramein. He's a theoretical physicist and a gentleman who has, uh, with uh, uh, help from a number of people, obviously, as he mentioned, uh, but uh, come up with a... Uh, proposed solution to the long sought after quest uh, for a unified field theory. We're going to be talking more about that uh, over the next hour and a half with Nassim and I'm sure we'll get much more deeply into it. So stick around. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia. And what do we have for you here? Oh, here's a fitting tune. This is the Tragically Hip from uh, Trouble in the Hen House. This is called A Head by a Century. Back in just a few minutes, this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN Columbia.
a century, tragically hip on KOPN Radio Orbit, and this is Mike Hagan. All right, my guest tonight is, is Nassim Haramine, and although he has been a little bit unorthodox in his training as such, he certainly has come up with some groundbreaking material that is now being considered by many different people in the scientific community. The particular paper that we're going to be talking about tonight and that we are addressing is one that's being published in the peer-reviewed Noetic Journal called The Origin of Spin, A Consideration of Torque and Coriolis Forces in Einstein's Field Equations and Grand Unification Theory. Uh, as I bring him back on the air here, Nassim, I would like to ask about uh, Dr. Rauscher, about Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher. I've heard her name uh, somewhere before uh, I ran into you, and I'm not exactly sure where, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about Dr. Rauscher and how she's involved with the work uh, that uh, that you're doing. Yes, Dr. Rauscher is a seasoned physicist that has been there, you know, throughout the um, 70, 60s and 70s with the pioneers of physics. Um, she was uh, involved even with um, John Wheeler and, um, you know, in writing a series on mini black holes. Right, right, the right, 70s, right. Way ahead of her time. She, was, she wrote many, very, many, many papers, over 300 papers, physics papers on unification and uh, various approaches to physics um, that were really ground, uh, groundbreaking papers in the 60s and 70s. And um, she received medals of honors for her participation in physics and so on. So um, it was really great to be able to pair up with Elizabeth and uh you know, uh, start working on these problems, in um, and and you know, and um, and working out the physics, and and you know, it was definitely a stretch for Elizabeth when we met because I had so um, different and various ideas about the current physics and the way they needed to be changed in order to generate a unified view. And really, what had what had really happened is that. She had done a lot of groundwork for it, and really, I, w I just brought a few key. I brought the keys in it that, hmm. that was necessary to sew it back together, and, right. and it was um, it was a great uh, collaboration, and, and it was very exciting to be able to, uh, you know, help each other in that way. And um, a lot of the work um, that we did was uh, groundbreaking for both of us. As we um, started to collaborate together, uh, a lot of the things that I was telling her from the beginning um, that she was unsure about and skeptical about um, just kept on coming through the math, and it really blew her away. Mm. And it was really an amazing uh, discovery uh, path and, and, and fun to see uh, those very fundamental concept that elaborated um, uh, in very, you know, different ways and, and uh, through some, you know, physics and, and to really get down to the, 
the grind and, and get all the math worked out and see it manifest and, and come out in such a beautiful way, um, making the, the theory so uh, powerful. Um, it was really, uh, it, it's, it's been a great collaboration. Right, and it, it's an amazing story, actually, and uh, obviously she originally was compelled or interested enough uh, that she wanted to pursue it, and then uh, once the, uh, as you say, as the mathematics started to pan out, then then you guys really sort of came together and the collaboration really began, so. Yeah, exactly, and that was really, uh, and, and so it's produced this, uh, this first uh, brown, we wrote, you know the scaling law before and all this, but I, I really wanted I wanted to publish um, you know a foundation paper for the theory, and that's really what we just published. Right. We're working on further papers right now to you know flesh out some more of the details of the theory and and uh, and round it up into this unified unified view. Uh, we give the first fundamental mathematics in this paper for this unified view. There's so much more following. And um, it's so inc incredibly um, exciting. It's coming out such in a beautiful way, and it gives a very, very powerful um, resolution to unification. And, you know, I, I feel that um, really that's needed at this time. I think that um, at this time in history, not only in physics, but overall on the planet, unification is... is fundamental and it mm. needs to occur and um, we need to all be human beings um, you know traveling on the same boat we call the earth and and uh, realizing that we're all connected and, and that we're all unified and and that's my hope really for those physics to, to bring that to the people in a very tangible way let me ask you a question real fast um, First of all, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, so much of this seems intuitive to me, and it's so nice to hear that it's bearing out uh, in scientific terms and, and through, math, uh, through mathematics. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd like to add that everything apparently comes down to spin. And th this is, I think, the, the, one of the foundations of the paper that, that you are having published. And with regards, we, we, we've talked about this idea of fractality across scale and similarity across scale but where does where does uh, where does spin fit into this whole story and why is uh, why is it important and how is it uh, how is it significant to to your theories right that's you know that's what I was getting into um, you know that's a very good question because it's like the universe is not a static thing right. you know everything in the universe is orbiting is spinning it's everything is moving um we have a tendency because we're you know little human beings on the surface of a planet with a fairly you know limited scale of of perspective to think that things are still that like the tree in your yard is still that you know that your house is still that that things are not moving or not moving very fast that nature but actually, if you look carefully, you know, even at the biological level, there's a lot of movement that's going on. There's a lot of things, you know, that the tree is constantly losing molecules and it's constantly making new ones. And your body is constantly mm -hmm. losing molecules and making new ones. And, um, 
you know, and all the atoms that you're that that are made, you know, um, that makes up everything we see are spinning at near the speed of light. Uh, the electrons are all spinning at near the speed of light. Right. The, you know, the subatomic particle, uh, the planet itself is spinning around the sun, and then the sun is spinning around the galaxy, and then mm -hmm. the galaxy is spinning around the cluster, and so on. So everything is moving at incredible velocities. It's not a it's not a static thing. It's not a static geometry. It became clear to me that it couldn't be. If I was looking for a fundamental pattern, that pattern had to be animated. It had to have angular momentum. It had to have spin. If it didn't have spin, it wasn't going to be able to create the energy levels that makes reality appear to us. Right. Like when electrons spin, when planets spin, when when things spin, energy radiates, and when energy radiates, we see it as our reality. So, um, I started to study angular momentum and, um, and spin, and I started to realize that there they, they was serious deficiency in our concepts of angular momentum and spin in our fundamental theories, such as quantum theory and relativistic physics. Mm -hmm. um, I realized and the current views for angular momentum and spin in the universe is that it all got started in the Big Bang. That is, there was a big explosion that sent everything spinning, including all the electrons, and the planets and the galaxies and the suns and everything, and it's been spinning since then in a the frictionless environment. Yeah. This is the current view. And to me, right away, I could see that there was an error there. Um, I could see that that would be true in an ideal environment, but out there in the universe, um, it's not a frictionless environment. Right, right. There's a lot of interaction. There's mm. plasma everywhere in galaxies. There's plasma inside solar system. There's plasma on the surface of a sun or a star. There's... Um, there's gravitational field interacting with each other. There's electromagnetic fields interacting with each other. There's a lot of viscosity inside objects. See, in order for the axiom to hold that these things would be spinning in a frictionless environment for billions of years, like mm. since the Big Bang, and uh, not slowing down, um, you would have to have all the objects in the in the universe the macro objects, the large objects, um, be consistent all the way through. That is, they, should, they, they wouldn't have viscosity inside them. Let me explain myself better. Imagine the Earth having a viscous core, like an iron molten core or okay. a molten lava uh, inside the Earth. Um, that is not a frictionless environment. Right. And the inside of the Earth spins at a different rate than the outside of the Earth, and that's what creates our magnetic field. So it's called a dynamo effect. It's right. like a little generator right, that generates a, a, a magnetic field. Right. Or at least that's the current, again, the current understanding. I think that there, there, there are some interesting theories about the core of the Earth as well, but at any rate... Right. Well, you know, the thing is, is that if you... Uh, have a dynamo, like a little dynamo you used to have on your bicycle that mm -hmm. you would tilt over to get your little light on top of the bicycle <laughs> to go. Right. You still need to pedal right. to get to that, that dynamo to spin. And so what's making the core of this, the Earth 
spin against the mantle of the earth. What's, if you take an egg and you burn it hard, now the egg is fairly consistent, consistent across and solid. So if you spin it on your table, it's going to spin in a continuous manner that you could think if it was in a frictionless mm -hmm. environment, it mm -hmm. could keep on spinning. Mm -hmm. But take the same egg, well, a different egg, and don't boil it hard, mm -hmm. and try the same thing, and the egg's going to stop very quickly because the the, vis, the viscous core of the egg, the yolk of the egg, is going to pull on the shell of the egg and slow it down very, very quickly. Right, right. Well, we've got the same problem when you were looking at the universe. Things are not solid all the way through. Um, for instance, the plasma dynamics on the surface of the sun. Sure, they, sure. There's all sorts of layers interacting, creating all sorts of frictional effects. Right, um, yeah. And the tide of of the the moon pulling on the earth, and and all these things like galaxies have, you know, plasma dynamics, intense, dense plasma dynamic at their core, and so on. Right, right, right. Now, what even is spinning all that? You can't just say. It's been spinning in a frictionless environment since the Big Bang. And right. You get the same. You go ahead. Well, it's not. It, uh, I guess. I guess your point is that I want to clarify for the listeners is that uh, space, whether it's uh, whether it's the infinite spaces outside uh, of the planet as we go outward or as we go inward, looking at the uh, at the micro. The space is not a vacuum, and it's not a frictionless environment. There are particles. And all kinds of different uh, d different things, I guess. Uh, that yeah, fields. Right, and they and they, and they all interact with one another, and so the the idea that you know not only the idea that things have continued to spin uh, ad infinitum since the uh, this mythical Big Bang, but. Uh, but we're also supposed to believe that it's going faster, and that and that and that the universe is expanding, and in fact, uh, somehow really overcoming these forces that that that, that somehow should be uh, not allowing that to happen. Exactly, new data is showing that the universe is accelerating. So then they had to add a force inside the vacuum to make it do that, and this is correlated with a big. See, when you, when you take Einstein field equations, which are the equations that describe how the gravitational fields of the universe with all the masses that are in the universe, how the universe would develop throughout the billions of years of, of evolution. When you use those equations to look at the universe, um, although Einstein field equations have been very strongly confirmed by all sorts of different experiments, when you apply them to, the, to our universe, it only predicts 2 to 4% of the mass that we observe in the universe. That is, they're missing 98% the mass of the universe right. to make it do what it looks like it's doing. Right. So, obviously, now, the tendency has been to say, well, the equations are correct, we're just not seeing all the stuff that's out there. And instead of revising the equation, they invented a new kind of matter and a new kind of energy. They called dark matter right. and dark energy. And they stuffed it in there so that the equation would work. Right, right. Um, well, it seems, that, it seems to me that, there, that, that that's sort of, sort of par for the course. In, in other words, try to make the, the, the real 
version match the equations Equation. that exist, as opposed to going from the opposite uh, direction, which, seem, which seems to make more sense. You know, the more the more we talk about about the traditional ideas and sort of the reductionist view, it becomes a metaphor to me, sort of like uh, like a car, like we like you're taking the car apart and you keep taking more and more parts, and pretty soon you got all these little parts of the car, but you can't go anywhere. Right, exactly. It's it, you lose the global view. Right. You lose the observation, and, and you know, and it just happens that the universe doesn't exist on your blackboard. You have to go out there and look and and observe and and. You know, they've been trying to look for dark matter and dark energy for almost a decade now, and they can't find it. And, you know, um, it's not to say they won't. Uh, what I'm saying is that, obviously, if the equation is only able to predict 2 to 4% of what we see in the universe, um, then we need to look at the equation and see what we've missed. And that's where I think that, you know, uh, Elizabeth... Uh, Rauscher and, and, and my work comes in where in this paper that we just wrote where where we show that actually there's a source to spin and that source is a space-time torque it's a force that's making everything spin and the force is equivalent to the amount of friction that's available so it continuously spin all the way down to the electron level and to the atomic structure and so on um, and the way we're saying this is that it's just like this Einstein discovered that gravity is not necessarily a force um, that is inherent to an object but it is the force of that object uh, the, the, the mass of the object forcing space and time to curve around it. It's called space-time curve, and, and, it, uh, and it attracts other objects to it. Imagine, imagine the surface of a trampoline, and imagine mm -hmm. a ball in the middle of the trampoline, and then imagine a smaller ball around the bigger ball, and the smaller ball would be attracted to the, to the bigger ball just because the trampoline surface is curved space-time curvature right, right. is how Einstein described gravity and you know at first when Einstein wrote this everybody thought that could not be you know uh, it would create distortion in light that we could observe and so on and it took a long time before they were able to actually prove it and and they did they, mm -hmm. they did mm -hmm. prove it in a way uh, showing that like does get distorted around gravitational fields like like because of the structure of space-time curving it a star behind the Sun during a solar eclipse uh, appears to be beside the Sun because the light from the star is being curved right. by the gravitational field of the Sun so, right. so the, the the star looks like it's beside the Sun what we've done um, what I'm showing in this um, in this new paper is that when space-time curves like that. It doesn't just curve like water going down the drain. It spins just like when you pull the plug on your tub. The water spins down the drain. It doesn't go straight down. Um, and it, 
you know, and 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 the curl of space-time imposes torque, a space-time torque, just like the motor of your car imposes torque on the wheels of your car that makes your car go forward, and and so that's. That space-time torque, just like fluid dynamics, just like water going down the drain, forces the objects to spin. And that energy of torque and Coriolis forces that are related to the spin of these objects has not been calculated in current equations. So, because it's assumed that it's spinning in a frictionless environment, and the cause of the energy, the Big Bang, is never accounted for. So, what I'm saying is that that would result in an equation that's missing 98 cent the mass of the universe. Hmm. Why? Well, imagine that you were analyzing the spin of the wheels of your car, and you took for account all the energy that was that's in the tire of the car, and the rim of the car, and the brakes, and um, you know the bolts that holds the wheel on, and the axles, and all the stuff, the transmission, and everything. But you never for account, the motor that produced the power to spin the wheels in the first place. Right. Well, you would be missing the largest part of the energy that produces the effect of the wheels spinning on your car. And that became obvious to me. And the details on how that was solved in Einstein's field equation gets really complex. But the concepts are very simple. They're very intuitive, um, they're very Newtonian, they're very fundamental, and, you know, um, and it, it generates a completely different view. Well, you mentioned geometry, pretty relatively straightforward geometry early on in, in our conversation, and I immediately started to think of the Plato's ideas, the old Greek ideas, and I think that using pretty simple geometries, they came up with some pretty sophisticated ideas that might sort of jive with some of the things that you're talking about. Absolutely, and this is where my study of ancient civilization and ancient traditions was so fruitful in helping me to derive these ideas mm. long before I wrote the advanced physics and math to right. prove them. The, um, you know, um, and it's interesting that if you study, for instance, Isaac Newton, he took a very similar path. Newton, most people don't realize, studied ancient Kabbalistic texts and Hebrew tradition and Egyptian tradition for over uh, for a very large part of his early life, long before he wrote any physics. And when he wrote physics, for instance, the laws of motions and the laws of gravity and so on, in his private writings, which are still available in museums, um, he mentions very clearly that he didn't discover these principles, um, you know, for instance, in the popular thought that, you know, he was sitting under an apple tree and an apple fell on his head. Um, that was just a way he described it to uh, one of his cousins that had a hard time understanding his laws of motion right. and gravity. But that actually he got all these ideas from studying ancient civilization and that there was some fundamental truth in those ancient texts and ancient uh, knowledge that led to very advanced physics and, um, and very advanced understanding of gravity and the forces of nature. So 
you know, I, I discovered this much later on, and, and it was very encouraging because I had followed very similar paths. And, and, and when you look in those ancient texts, and, and, you know, you were talking about the plant, the Platonic solids and the Pythagorean schools. I mean, the Pythagorean schools 200 years before Plato right. um, describe many of these concepts um, of geometric structure generating angular momentum and spin and uh, resonance frequencies and so on. And, and it's, it was all shrouded in mysticism and, you know, all sorts of different beliefs, but it was still there. And it was emerging and really it led most of the physics that we have today and um, and people don't necessarily realize that uh, mm. for instance Einstein field equations are a geometrization of space well when you geomet when Einstein geometrized space uh, you know fundamentally he used the Pythagorean right angle triangle to do it right. Um, right. and so it's it's there it's omnipresent and at this point it basically begs to be put together in a coherent view that 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 solves all objects from infinitely big to infinitely small okay so, um, well listen we're at the top of the hour here and let's take another break I want to mention something real fast you were mentioning uh, mentioning that Newton was interested in many many other ideas other than uh, simple, straightforward science. You mentioned uh, that he was in, interested in Kabbalistic ideas and this sort of thing. And I, I actually did a story or read a story just a couple weeks ago about uh, the interest that he had in, in, in alchemy. And, of course, the, the, the lost art slash science of alchemy is another one of these topics that gets sort of poo-pooed uh, in, uh, in our positivist uh, uh, state here. However, there was a tremendous amount of relevant information in, in, in many of those old writings as well, and, and Newton obviously knew that. So, Yeah, I would agree to that, and, um, and we can talk about it um, later on after the break. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll do that. We'll come back and we'll talk. I want to talk a little bit more, Nassim, about... Uh, I want to clarify the ideas of this theory a little bit more, just so in, in, the, uh, in the mind's eye of the listener that they can get a real clear image of what we're talking about here and then after we've done that we'll just do, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of reiterate what we've gone over a little bit more and, I'm, and maybe you can give a little bit more imagery uh, ideas of imagery because once we get that straight I want to talk about the implications about what it means what these things mean and uh, I think that I think that that uh, is really where the uh, where the treasure lies, because it it opens up a lot of doorways that have been closed for for a very very long time, I think. So, all right, so we'll do that. We'll be back. Uh, no problem, Nassim. We'll be back in just a few minutes with my guest Nassim Haramine, and we'll talk about resonance as well. the uh, The name of his website or the address of his website is www.theresonanceproject.org. That's the Resonance Project. Org. And there's a reason that he chose the word resonance, I have a feeling. And we're going to talk a little bit more about spin and about this, uh, this scalar self-similar or self-similarity across scale that the universe uh, seems to be exhibiting and that uh, Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher and uh, Nassim have uh, borne out on paper with mathematics and with hardcore real science. 
So we'll be back with uh, more of this in just a few minutes. This is Mike Hagen. You've been listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN. We'll be back in, uh, well, i got sort of a long song here, but I just have to play it because it's so fitting for the topic tonight. So I'll get right to it here, and I may cut in uh, and just bring the volume down if I get uh, bored with it. But we've got uh, quite a few minutes here to take a breath, go get a glass of water, do whatever you need to do, and I'll be back with my guest Nassim Haramine from the Residence Project in just a few minutes. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit on KOPN.
All right, long, long song, but epic stuff from Rush, Permanent Waves. And that song is called Natural Science. And uh, that's what we're talking about tonight, actually, with my guest, Nassim Haramine. And there's a line, actually, in that song that says, Wheels within wheels in a spiral away array, a pattern so grand and complex, time after time we lose sight of the way our causes can't see their effects. And that's exactly what it sounds like the last 500 years of reductionist positivist science have been. Lost our way, so to speak, Nassim, and uh, people like yourself and Dr. Rauscher and some other wonderful people in many different branches of science are trying to bring this back together. And that's what we're talking about tonight. And uh, as I said, my guest is the theoretical physicist Nassim Haramein. You can learn more about him and his work at theresonanceproject.org. And you can get there directly from my site at radioorbit.com if you don't want to uh, try to spell uh, that out because I'm not going to repeat it. Okay. Uh, Nassim, we're back here. So let's uh, get back to where we were, uh, where we were coming from. Uh, this, 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 I, these ideas that you're bringing forward, I'd like to sort of clarify them a little bit. And then we'll move forward about, uh, or with some discussion about what they mean and some of the implications of what we're talking about tonight, okay? Okay, that sounds great. So, we were, we were talking about how, you know, cosmological objects hadn't been given the appropriate source of energy in order for them to spin right. in our current mathematics and current understanding. And, and, you know, basically all of a sudden, if you imagine the amount of torque you need to spin a whole galaxy, right. you're talking about a lot of energy. <laughs> and, and not, not to mention an infinite number of galaxies, or, or at least a number so large uh, that it boggles the mind if we actually could count that high. Yeah, exactly. Uh, absolutely. And, and imagine that, that that torque of space-time is applied at the, at the universal level, even that that the universe would be spinning right, right. and then you start to get an idea of why galaxies are moving faster and faster away from each other and all this stuff it, it starts to all make sense um, um, and, and, and you're starting to be able to describe the, the dynamics of creation as this fluid hydrodynamic structure of space time you know Einstein's field equations are solved in in hydro um, uh, dynamic equations and in the way you know the space-time manifold arranged so basically um, being able to put the torque in, and Coriolis forces which are like for instance the forces that makes hurricanes spin in one direction in the north uh, atmosphere and in the other direction in the south hemisphere the Coriolis forces are or the the spin dynamics on the surface of an object that has angular momentum, and these um, you know adding all this starts to give you a picture of space time that's completely different. Instead of adding a sphere, you end up with a torus. In fact, mm. you end up with a dual torus, like a sphere with two vortices going to the center, uh, and and. A torus is like a, a donut with a hole in the middle, but in this case, the hole in the middle is extremely, extremely small, 10 to the minus 33. It's like a little singularity. It's like a little black hole in there. Mm -hmm. And 
um, you know, there's, you know, all sorts of reasons why that happens. It has to do with the Lawrence and variants and all this, but I don't want to get into many details. What, um, what, what happens, you know, in terms of what's going on at this, the atomic level is different because, you know, we're talking about planets, suns, galaxies, and all this, but what about the atom? So that, we have to get back up in time now to, to start to look at how quantum theory emerged and how really we, where the errors would have been made at the atomic level so that we wouldn't get a continuity of that model of space-time torque spinning everything all the way down to subatomic particles. Uh, well, now, Sim, may, may I ask a question before, before we go there? I, ha I, have, I have something I'd like, I'd like to clarify, if, if you could. Uh, I'm, I made a note here. I actually had a listener that called. I have two things, actually, that I want to clarify before we move on. Uh, uh, a listener who's, who's uh, uh, tuning in right now asked about water. You mentioned earlier that water, uh, as it moves down a drain or whatever, has this spin, and it moves in a particular direction that, we, that most of us know as the Coriolis effect. She mentioned that water acts differently, for example, if it goes over an edge. It, it, it sheets, for example, as opposed to, to spinning. Uh, is there is 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 that uh, a relevant question, or should we be concerned with that uh, sort of an idea? Um, yeah, I mean it, it is relevant. You know, you you got to realize that when I'm talking about water going down the drain, I'm using an analogy to mm -hmm. describe the dynamics of space-time, um, uh, which is not quite the same as water. Uh, so. Um, but um, you know, you could you could think of it this way. Um, imagine water going down the, a stream in a natural environment. The tendency is always that the water will generate eddies mm. everywhere along its path. It's gonna self-organize in these eddies due to the terrain and the arrangements of the rocks and all this, and any sharp edges that makes the water shear um, eventually erodes to move towards closer and closer to an eddy. So back towards spin. And it's so, always moving towards spin, in other words. Yeah, le exactly. To, towards the natural dynamic mm -hmm. of spin. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, you know, various engineers and and and, and um, you know, thinkers throughout the ages have noticed. You know, uh, uh, Schalberger was a was a well-known uh, uh, engineer that that sure. wrote much about the vortex motion of water and and its powers and and its nonlinear effects and so on. So it's really, you know, when you look at the dynamics, for instance, imagine the red spot on Jupiter. You know that huge right, vortex. Right. Right you know, the size and a half of the Earth mm -hmm. spinning at a constant rate for um, eons in the same place, you know, like a, the eye of an hurricane that never goes away. Right. Um, imagine the plasma dynamics on the surface of the sun that are spinning all the time. All that stuff, it needs a source in order to spin. It has to have energy spinning it. It can't just be... Um, Spinning um, just from the energy of the Big Bang 20 billion years ago, or, yeah, or even yeah. 14 billion years ago, 
and um, and and be considered to spin in a frictionless environment. It okay. needs a source. It needs a force that continuously generates that spin. That can like the water going down the hill, going down um, the mountain. Uh, you know, constantly making those eddies. Um, it needs a source of water. It needs a source of energy. It needs a source to be continuously doing that. Right. Okay. And All right. Yeah, that makes and that, that makes perfect sense. Okay. And and so that's what I'm pointing out is that the source of spin is actually torque in space time. And so I was so. Uh, is that a little bit clearer for you? Yeah, yes, it is. And and let okay, me good. and let me ask one more quick question that's that, that's just eaten away at me, uh, which it, which you may be able to answer as well. This idea that the universe is expanding, I've I've always had a difficult time conceptually with it in my in my in my mind because, as as you point out pointed out earlier, the the universe is sort of viscous and there aren't these clear boundaries between. Uh, but between objects and systems, for example, there's not a clear boundary of where where the solar system ends and sort of intergalactic or, or intersolar space begins. And same thing with galaxies. To me, it seems like there's not an, uh, a clearly defined edge uh, that would say, okay, this inside of this boundary is the galaxy, and outside of it is now intergalactic space. So I don't understand if the universe is expanding, if we take into account all of these fractal ideas, but why aren't atoms tearing themselves apart, expanding away from themselves? And, and in other words, why doesn't that occur fractally as well? And why isn't why aren't the, the planets flying away from the sun? And why isn't why don't we see this expansion on the small scale? The scientists tell us that well, the expansion only happens in intergalactic space. And I said, well, how, how is that possible? Correct. That's a very good point. You know, many have pointed that out. Um, that's kind of deflected in current science by saying, you know, everything expands up to galaxies and then everything is stable from there on. And, um, you know, it doesn't quite make sense. The other problem is that, and I pointed that out at Georgia Tech a long time ago, mm-hmm. is that if we have a universe that's expanding, and the typical view is that it's represented as a balloon with pennies grouped to it, and the pennies are galaxies, and when you inflate the balloon, the pennies move away from each other, uh, showing the expansion, the expansion of the universe. Well, if we continue with that analogy, then there's something seriously missing, and, and that's what I'm talking about, the source. Um, because in order for the balloon to, you know, expand, um, you have to have somebody blowing in it. You have yeah. to have some yeah. air being compressed in the balloon yeah, in order right. to, for the balloon to expand. So there has to be a source of energy to make that happen. And that source has to be understood because that really is the source of creation. If we understood that, then we would understand the fundamental dynamics of creation. And, you know, the fact that the the universe has been seen now to accelerate as it expands tells us that we haven't completely understood this. In current views, the universe is not even 
spinning. The universe is supposed to be static, just <sighs> expanding linearly, not spinning. Right, right. Um, it seems like the wholeness gets deeper and deeper. It seems like, uh, to me, when I when I hear these, the, the way the theories just morph and they just add more caveats to the old theories, it just, uh, I don't know, to me it just sounds like they just dig a deeper and deeper hole and that it, it's just... Yeah, it's very similar that when we talk that the, the Earth was at the center of the solar system and, and you know, the certainly... Um, the Vatican and, and various, you know, religious uh, institutions, you know, were very dead set on that, that the, that the Earth was um, was the center of our solar system. Oh, well, so yeah. In order to account for everything we were seeing out there, like the way the, the planets were moving around us, we had to invent a solar system that was extremely complex and, you know, with all sorts of twists and turns and weird stuff, just so that we could match what we was we were observing and the way we thought the theory should be written. And as soon as we realized, you know, with the help of Kepler and Galileo, that the center of our solar system was the sun, then the whole solar system became much more simple and everybody could understand it again and it was intuitive. It was, right. you know, it seemed much more correct. Um, and I think this is what's going on, you know, the, the theories and the, the complexity of our theories and the complexity of the interaction between our theories or, or the lack of interaction between the theories has created so much um, layers of basically putting a plaster on, you know, like a Band-Aid on and then another one and another one and another one and another one and then it gets just more and more complex and and I believe further and further from the, tr the truth. I think that the truth is most likely simple and beautiful and <laughs> the dynamics of spin and angular momentum and the the movement of Coriolis forces and the you know that are similar to the flow of water or the dynamics of plasma on planets and so, and so on to me that's beautiful that you know is telling us something mm. about creation well, and how the universe operates Gosh, uh, you, you say something there that really strikes me, and uh, again, it goes back to these Platonic ideas, and I think that there was a reason that, that Plato connected the good, the true, and ultimately the beautiful. Most likely the truth will be beautiful. Exactly, and, and simple, and, and mm. easy to explain to an to a eight-year-old. Right, um, right. And... and um, and so basically, just as, as much as the solar system is easy to explain as an eight-year-old, as, as, as long as you got the sun in the middle, if you got the earth in the middle, then it gets really complex. Right, right. And, and so, and, and that's exactly what happened at the birth of quantum theory. Um, something really strange happened. We discovered the electron spin. We discovered that the electron spins around the nuclei of an atom and spins at not trivial speed, but at near the speed of light in a continuous manner mm -hmm. in which radiation, um, you know, if, if we apply simple laws of mechanics, the electrons should have not been able to do that for mm -hmm. more than microseconds after the Big Bang. It's, it should have radiated all its energy 
and crash onto the nuclei due to, you know, lots of motion and so on. And, mm. you know, it became a big problem. It became a big dilemma. And instead of thinking, maybe we don't understand all the dynamics of spin and what makes things spin in the universe, the tendency was to um, abandon the search for causation, and that's very specific in quantum theory. There is an axiom in quantum theory, one of the first axioms of quantum theory, that says we're not going to look for cause. We're not going to say what's causing the electron spin. We're just going to say it's spinning, and we're going to go from there. And we're going to define each energy level of that spin and assign a number to it, and thus the quantum numbers and the orbitals of the atom and the probability clouds and so on. And, you know, it became clear to me that that was, again, a way to avoid or, you know, um, defining the source of the spin of the electron. So... We, we started to, you know, dig into that and, 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 you know, we're writing more papers on that right now and, you know, there's part of it that's in the paper that was just published that has to do with more of the subatomic particle right. level of this um, knowledge. But now we are uh, working with the eigenvalues in, you know, in the um, Swartinger's equations of quantum theory that describes the electron clouds to show that actually the electron is spinning because space-time torque is approaching a very small radius. And imagine a vortex. Um, hmm. Imagine the hmm. vortex of the water going down the drain. Now imagine that the surface of the vortex, if you had a little ball up there, it would be spinning slower at the top. And as the vortex mm -hmm. would go get narrower and narrower, it would start spinning faster and faster. Right. Well, the electron in this view is the vortex of space-time, the spin of space-time at a very small radius. And when it gets that small, now it's spinning near the speed of light. Mm -hmm. And because it is overcoming the radiation and, and all the... Um, you know, uh, expansion of energy of the atom, it is in, in continuous motion, which seems to look like the electron is spinning in a frictionless environment, but it's just because there's a source of energy, space-time torque, equivalent to the energy radiated by the atom, so it appears to be continuously spinning. Right, and it, it seems, it's, again, it seems... Uh in in that environment, as you describe it it, it, it it seems sort of to me the opposite of a frictionless environment. It seems to me that there's probably a tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of friction. Exactly, and that you know, and and that you need a, a very large amount of energy and a very large amount of source of energy in order to spin the electron. And this really links into. Hmm. Right. what is called the vacuum fluctuation, vacuum foam, uh, um, you know, zero-point energy that, um, you know, that we don't want to get too technical about right now, but it's very, very important to all of a sudden realize that the spin of the electron is actually the energy of the space-time torque acting on an object that is, you know, of the 
you know, Krypton link, which, right, you yeah. know, is the, the size of the, electron, the, the atom. Right. And so then we're starting to look at the atom in a, in a completely different way. It's almost like you had taken a star and shrinked it into an atomic size object. And, and, and so let's go back to our first change in the axioms of dimensions and, and scale. And, and imagine that the atom can be divided to infinity, that faster you smash atoms together, smaller particles you're going to get, and you can do that to infinity. Right. Imagine that you can continue to break pieces out of the atom and get smaller and smaller and smaller ones you know, now billions of times smaller than the atoms and you can continue to do that. That would mean really if that if you took that concept globally and if if you applied it directly, that would mean that when you're talking about an atom, you're really talking about a point of infinite density. You're talking about a mini black hole. You're talking about a point that has infinite potential because it continuously spins hmm. at near the speed of light. Right, right. And now you're so basically you're looking like a like at, at a mini black hole, and that changes your view dramatically. Well, it also now it, it, it sounds very outrageous, but it means it, it would mean that they're everywhere. That's right. It means that every atom you're looking at is a mini black hole. And it has a mini singularity at its center, and it's like a little teeny weeny vortex in space that we call reality. Mm-hmm. And that starts to give you a completely different view of the atom. There's something that's very powerful that come out of that view very quickly. That is that when quantum physics was first formulated, after they solved this supposedly solved this problem with the electron spin, they realized there was another, even much larger problem. And that was that the proton, this, when they discovered the small particle at the center of the, elect, of the atom, mm-hmm. in the nuclei of the atom, the protons, they realized that they were all very highly charged, um, positively charged particles. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take two objects that are positively charged, and, you know, like two magnets, and you, you push them together, they're going to want to resist. They want to push away, correct? Correct, correct. And so that, those, you know, and, and if those magnets were really strong, you wouldn't be able to push them together. It would take a lot of force to right. push them together. And so they looked at these subatomic particles, protons, highly charged particles all squished together in a very tiny little beady point in the middle of the atom. Like the nuclear of an atom is like the head of a pin in the middle of Plaza San Marco, the the big dome in Venice, you know, it's like a little pin in the middle there, um, in terms of scale. So it's very, very small relative to the electron cloud. And these highly positively charged particles are squished together in there and they thought wait a minute that can't be gravity doing that it's way you know you need so much right, strength to right. push these particles together we'll have to invent a new force huh. and instead of looking at their concepts of gravity or the concepts of what an atom is 
They invented a new force. They called it the strong the strong force. force. Sure, sure. Yeah, the strong nuclear force. They said it was mediating by gluons. Okay. Right, made up uh, another name for another particle. Right. Right, that mediates that strong force. And basically, they calculated how much force you would need to keep these particles together against their will, if you'd like. Right. And they made that the num the force of the strong force. I mean. That's circular thinking, but never mind that. That has stuck since then. Now, if all of a sudden we realize that an atom is a mini black hole, and we look at the amount of gravity a mini black hole that size would generate at singularity, near the, you know, near the nuclei of that mini black hole. Okay. The gravity that that mini black hole was, would produce is exactly the amount of force you need to hold the protons together. Huh. And this you works out and again this works force. out again this works out with the equations that you and Dr. Rauscher have have uh, have come up with. Yeah, this is some of the papers we're writing right now. We verified this and we have that section written, but we haven't published it yet, because mm-hmm. like I was saying, I'm publishing foundation papers and mm-hmm. kind of working, you know, step by step sure, into, sure. you know, the, the full view of the theory. Sure, but you're, so, but, you're, but you're confident in that, because because that's a pretty profound statement if we think about what, what that says. Oh, yes, I'm very confident in that, and the calculation works. Actually, it's, it is exactly the amount of force you need to hold the protons together it's uh, it's very compelling remarkable and so all of a sudden we're starting to look at an atom in a completely different way Mm -hmm. and we're starting to look at the reality in a completely different way and so we start to write mathematics that show that there's a feedback imagine that the universe is expanding. And like I was explaining before, if it's expanding, then there's something that has to be compressed or contracting, you know, in order for the expansion to happen. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Okay. And so that means that, and, and that compressive, contractive part, the the part that moves the ener- energy in, in concentration towards singularity, is space-time torque in this view. Okay. And the force that radiates from, as the result of the space-time torque is what we call the electromagnetic radiation. Like the radiation of a star, or the radiation of a sun, or the radiation of an atom, or, and so on. Then actually, the... Uh, there's a direct um, balance equation that can be written between the electromagnetic radiation of an object and the amount of space-time torque that's going in that object to spin it. Okay. And it, it's, it, and that's where we come back to that fractal structure. This feedback between space-time torque and electromagnetic radiation and space-time torque and electromagnetic radiation. Imagine, the, imagine a torus, a donut, where the energy goes out at the equator and then comes back in at the poles and then mm-hmm. back out at the equator. When we look at a galaxy, it looks just like that. 
and when we look at the solar system and the logistics, it looks just like that. When we look at the, the plasma dynamics on the sun, it, lo it looks just like that. The, even when we look at the weather patterns on Earth, like in the plasma of our atmosphere, the weather patterns go from the North Pole down to the equator and then back up to mm -hmm. the North Pole and then back down, like that in this perpetual motion um, driven by thermodynamics and, and, and driven by spin. And so hmm. all this starts to, to give us a complete view of the a, a complete view of a feedback between the information that's going in and the information that's going out. And based on that view, years ago, I predicted that black holes actually had just as much information coming out of them as hmm. there was information going in. And, you know, after 30 years of refuting this, um, it's interesting that Stephen Hawking recently announced that he believed he, had, he, he believed that it was time for him to review, to reverse that view and to mm -hmm. think that actually black holes may radiate information, not just swallow information. Right, interesting. And that's very supportive and, and, and confirming and, and that you know, when we're trying to have a few of these feedback of information, and when you start to see the world in this feedback fractal information loop, you start to see it everywhere, even in the way you do things every day. You eat, you eat food, get energy, and then you radiate out throughout the day. Mm. And as you radiate out throughout the day, energy, you know, thermodynamically, you are touching things and you're seeing things and you're experiencing things and you're gathering information and then from the information you're gathering you're acting in a very specific way using the energy that you have gathered through eating and so on and gathering more information and so on and that feedback continues mm -hmm. and we see it in in the trees, making the fruit, making the seed, which falls, that makes another tree, that makes the fruit, that makes the seed, that right. falls, yeah. and so on. And that and cycle so of creation, that feedback between what's going in and what's coming out, and what's going in and what's coming out. And basically, we can write physics directly on that view that makes a balanced view between what's going out, which is the electromagnetic field, and what's going in, which is the gravitational space-time torque. And the two movements, going in and going out, defines boundaries that you could call event horizons. That is the boundary from which the information moves from inward to outward, back to inward, in a continuous motion of creation. And you could even think of it as basically the universe learning about itself hmm. by feeding the information out and then back in and back out and every time it does a loop it changes so it learns about itself hmm. so rather than universe as machine more like a teleological idea of the universe it's sort of almost like an organism correct an organism driven but by very mechanical mm -hmm. or mechanistic functions that are still completely nonlinear because they have this 
feedback loop right. in which the you know the output is completely non-deterministic hmm. you know it's going to feedback but you don't know where it's going to go what it's going to learn how it's going to learn it so mm -hmm. it's always learning about itself um Very and and so ultimately and this is certainly you know the you know some of the physics that haven't been written yet but but ultimately we can start to see how this kind of feedback of information through space-time would start to generate much more complex system, further mm -hmm. and further complex system that, from which biology eventually would emerge mm -hmm. and, and eventually a human being with self-awareness, right. which is a feedback between what's going on on the outside and what's going on on the inside. In order to be self-aware, you have to have a feedback from the external world. You have to be able to see yourself in the mirror and, and know that it's you. So ultimately, this theory even includes the possibility of information creating what we think of as consciousness in biological entities, which would be like the ultimate production of of the feedback loop learning about it, uh, about itself well you know and again it seems sort of like a necessity uh, for for uh, things like biology to even emerge in other words it you know it it reminds me of the work of the Belgian thermodynamicist Ilya Prigozhin and even Eric Jansch before him maybe but this idea that that complex systems can actually uh, through uh, perturbations actually achieve a, 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 a higher order of complexity. Iteration through right. uh, feedback. Right. Um, right. Okay. From a very simple um, set of rules, you can get a very complex, um, very evolved um, system of organisms. And that's why, you know, this view, this theory, and especially with the scaling law mm -hmm. that we wrote, becomes appealing to many biologists, um, you know, like Michael Heisen right. and, and Elizabeth Saturis and, that are collaborating uh, with us, and, and uh, that, that all of a sudden we're getting a unified view of physics, and that expands to a unified view of physics with biology, which mm. is kind of really never being fully done in Einstein's equation. There's not really any human beings. There's not really an explanation for biology and, and or, you know, microorganism or and, and in quantum theory neither. So, so where does that leave biology? How does biology emerge from, from a bunch of atoms getting put together? Well, they have to have a set of network of information that allows them to self-organize in further and further complexity in a way that things can be coherent and continue to be able to evolve without, you know, falling apart, literally. I mean, when you look at the amount of information that's necessary in order for a human being to be alive, it's uh, it's very mind-boggling. A, hmm. a simple example would be the amount of DNA in one cell um, of a human being or any organism um, is is approximately six feet. Um, and 
you know, if you calculate the amount of DNA in the one human being, uh, if you put all the six feet end to end, all the DNA in each cell end to end, you could wrap the DNA of one human being five million times around the world. That's present inside of you right now in order for you to have complete wow. coherency so that your cells know what's going on so that your toe cells don't make no cells and your no cells don't make toe cells. Amazing. And that everybody is communicating. The amount of data transfer is tremendous. Amazing. And, and this dynamics, this complexity, can only emerge from a self... Um, a self-recurring um, system where you have a feedback loop of information so it knows what works and what doesn't work and continue to increase complexity and keep coherence. Well, you know, uh, okay, look, look, we've got a, we've got about five minutes left here uh, to sort of wrap things up, but I tell you what, this, uh, talk about resonance, it, it resonates, the stuff that you say to me, because if there's anything else that, that, that seems patently obvious to me and I've, and I've yet to run into somebody that can argue against this it does seem that uh, that that the universe or at least the the corner of it that we're most familiar with uh, it is becoming more and more complex more and more complicated in other words uh, we have a much more complicated situation on the surface of this planet than we had uh, say a million years ago for example right um we see that in nature all the time. Right. You know, the nature basically continues to refine itself right. and, and adapt itself to its environment uh, constantly to to uh, achieve higher and higher levels of adaptivity mm. and and evolution. Uh, you know, I, it's something I love. Um, you know, that the biologist Elizabeth Saturis once mentioned to me was that. If you look at um, microbial life at the at the birth of of the biology of this planet, you know they were uh, monocellular systems that uh, produced a lot of oxygen as, as outgas, and 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 basically that was the uh, pollution of their time. There was too much oxygen, and it and, and eventually it reached a breaking point on the Earth where where um you know monocellular system or and by, by bacterial life was about to um self destruct and and not be able to continue because there was too much pollutants which was the oxygen at the time and 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 all this was happening because they were in competition mm. um and and soon and and they came to the brinks of extension and if they would have um we wouldn't be here to talk about it um, and eventually, at one point, they decided that they better collaborate. And when they started to collaborate, they started to generate more complex multicellular systems that could breathe and digest the oxygen and use the oxygen for their benefit and balance other systems that don't mm. and, and that produce it. And so the result was, you know, all this flurry of incredible, you know, collaboration of bacterial systems that makes up all of the biology we see today that's much more complex than monocellular things that all came out of the fundamental structures that were there at the time you know finally achieving collaboration and I think 
that on the next fractal level, we are at that point on the planet at this time. And, and you know, we're at that point where we're just about to, you know, do ourselves in and, and because we are in competition. And if we could just learn to collaborate, if we could just see the unified field that we live in, uh, if we could just see that we are all made of the same things, all achieving for the same reasons, I think that we would, you know, increase our chance of survival much, much better. Well, amazing um, stuff, amazing stuff, Nassim, and, and uh, I think that uh, certainly the ideas that you and Dr. Rausch are putting forth uh, are at least putting it out there, the, uh, showing, showing not only uh, uh, other scientists and peers, but also regular people uh, like uh, that there are answers, there are solutions. It's just a matter of embracing them and changing our minds a little bit and, and, and utilizing them in the right, uh, in the right manner. Exactly, and you know, I assure you that if we come to understand uh, better the foundation of the forces of creation, gravity and electromagnetism, and the forces of the atom, we have very, very great opportunity to develop very advanced knowledge and technology that can really help us move through this difficult time in the evolution of man uh, that we're experiencing now. Well, I tell you what, uh, that's a that's a that's a great uh, way to end the program here. So, I want to thank you very much for spending your afternoon. Of course, Nassim's in Hawaii. I don't know if I mentioned that, but uh, thanks very much for spending the time that you did with me and my audience. We appreciate it. I'd like to. Uh, we'll certainly stay in touch, and I think that there's plenty of uh, reason and opportunity to do this again in the future where you can give us updates on uh, how the research is going and, and, and again I'd like to talk more about the implications and some of the, uh, the ways that we, might, that, that we might actually use this knowledge now to uh, dig us out of some of the holes uh, that, we've, that, we've, that we find ourselves in now in the, in the early days of this millennium but at any rate uh, it's been fantastic we could talk a long while but uh, we're going to have to cut it at this point, but thank you very much, Nassim, uh, for the work that you're doing and, and for spending the time with me and my audience tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure, and thank you for having me, and I look forward to the next time. All right, wonderful. Take care of yourself and, uh, and your family. Thank you very much. All right. Have a good night. You too. All right, uh, there you have it. That was my guest, Nassim Haramein, a wonderful thinker and a theoretical physicist doing some amazing work along with his partner, Dr. Elizabeth Rauscher. And you can learn all about the stuff we talked about tonight and more at his website, theresonanceproject.org. You can get there from radioorbit.com. Let's uh, finish things off with a little bit of music here next week, the big party. Don't forget it. Come on down anytime between 11 and 2. You're more than welcome. I'd like to meet anybody who's interested in meeting me. In the meantime, we'll finish things up here with uh, a band that played just the other night down at the uh, the latest... Uh, or the new incarnation of the old music cafe. It's now called the Blue Fugue, and they're doing some wonderful things down there. And this is a song by a band that was just there on Saturday night. They're called the Insidious Rays, and this song is called This is Science in French. This is Mike Hagen. You've been listening to Radio Orbit. I'll be back next week. In the meantime, Boogeyman is coming up in just a moment.
I don't know. 